I'm Jason Van Metting. And I'm Ksenia Chmutana. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Today we don't have any guests with us. You guys only get to listen to Ksenia and I. Yay! Lucky you. <laughs> but we thought we'd just have an episode where we discuss some of the recent work that we've been doing in a bit more detail, because sometimes we kind of refer to um, some papers that we've been writing or some of the projects we've been working on. But we wanted to take a little bit more time to unpack one project in particular, right? Right. And it's our favorite project and we keep working on it so yeah suspense we have previously discussed some of the work that went into the paper in gar 2019 where we were looking at the use of the expression natural disaster in ngo and igo documents and so today we wanted to look at another bit of work that we've have been doing for like what the last two years since we started or less than that right it must have been two years because i guess we started in 2017 when we wrote yeah. that open democracy piece together right that yeah. was the precursor there is a lot of natural disasters and academic publications so what we want to do today is talk about a paper that is hot off the press in fact we are just waiting for a link to be able to share with you and hopefully we'll be able to put it on the show notes by the time you listen to this. In any case, we are publishing this paper in the International Journal of Disaster Risk Science and the paper is called A Dilemma of Language, Natural Disasters in Academic Literature. As we unpack in this paper, it's something that has increased and is still seems to be on the increase I do feel like there's some positive signs on social media of um, of some impact of the No Natural Disaster campaign. Right. But, you know, this is something that is really a problem, and uh, it's not a new thing. It's something that scholars have, have highlighted for a long time. And, you know, those of us in disaster studies sort of trace this idea back to the 70s and to a, to a seminal work by Phil O'Keefe, Ken Westgate and Ben Weisner that they wrote for Nature in volume 260, 1976. And it was called Taking a Naturalness Out of Natural Disasters. And in that article, they uh, sort of started using the natural disaster in quotation marks, right? Like we do. Um, as a sort of critique of the uncritical use of natural disaster as a expression, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, th- this argument is not new, as we've, we've already discussed this on the podcast, you know. There's been sort of hundreds of years and decades of discussing and explaining why disaster is not natural. I guess Rousseau, Rousseau's letters are a good example, and we've talked about it before, mm-hmm. um, where he talked about Lisbon earthquake. But I also, if, if I may, Jason, can I, can I read something? <laughs> you may. 
Oh, thank you. Well, so Jason and I, we've been sort of obsessing slightly with um, Eduardo Galeano. Yes, we have. And his, his work. <laughs> and if you're not familiar with his work, you know, please just go and buy it now. Uh, all his books are amazing. Just absolutely amazing. And this, the stories, you know, th that he writes are just so powerful. They're extremely short. But also the uh, open veins of Latin America is, is more uh, long version nonfiction. Yeah. And so the, the, the piece that I want to read you uh, for you today, it's called Other Natural Disasters. And it's from, um, Eduardo Galeano's Mirrors, Stories of Almost Everyone, translated by Mark, um, Fried. So the story is called Other Natural Disasters. In 1879, after three years without rain, the Indians number nine million fewer. It is the fault of nature. These are natural disasters, say those who know. But in India, during these atrocious years, the market is more punishing than the drought. Under the law of the market, freedom oppresses. Free trade, which obliges you to sell, forbids you to eat. India is not a powerhouse, but a colonial plantation. The market rules. Wise is the invisible hand which makes and unmakes, and no one should dare correct it. The British government confines itself to helping a few of the moribund die in working camps at coal relief camps, and to demanding the taxes that the peasants cannot pay. The peasants lose their lands, sold for a pittance, and for a pittance they sell the hands that work it, while shortages send the prices of the grain hoarded by merchants sky high. Exporters do a booming trade. Mountains of wheat and rice pile up on the wharves of London and Liverpool. India, starving colony, does not eat, but it feeds. The British eat the Indian's hunger. On the market, this merchandise called hunger is highly valued, since it broadens investment opportunities, reduces the cost of production, and raises the price of goods. I guess, yeah, that's a summary of what we've been discussing. Mm. But it's also given nice perspective, I think, on how we, we as academics discuss disasters in the way we write and the way we express our thoughts on the paper, which then, you know, get distributed all around the world, right? To researchers all around the world. And whether the way we express our thoughts actually impact the researchers around the world and the actions around the world is what we want to chat to you about today. Yeah, like imagine if if you um, took that story at face value, say in the media, um, as, a, as <laughs> yeah. a natural disaster and look at all the context of what's really going on that you would miss that Galliano mm -hmm. explains. You know, what's really going on here is really not natural at all. No, no. And he highlights it so well in such an easy way. I just, I love that when he says that, you know, the hunger is what, what gives us power, right? Because yeah. when somebody is hungry, they're willing to sell everything that they have. Yeah. So it's not even about like the tragedy of the disaster. It's about no. political dimension and the, the power behind it and the way that suffering and lack can be used to 
um, oppress and control people and to profit from people's misfortune, right? Yeah, right. And, you know, I think actually that, that lack of, um, drama and, and, and lack of explicit sort of, you know, death, if you want, you know, or explicit impacts of disaster. That's, that's what it should be really when we talk about mm. disasters. Because I mean, look at how disasters are portrayed in the media and even in the way we write and the academic reports and practical reports. We always talk about the number of deaths, the number of things mm. being destroyed, the pictures we always show, uh, the ones of a destroyed house, of a killed person, because this is how we perceive disaster, right? It's about tragedy, but actually it's not. It doesn't have to be a tragedy, but that is something we don't want to talk about because it's political. Well, really, disasters are about the, the negative impacts of the development paradigm, aren't they? Some people yeah, say disasters are about maldevelopment, but you could just say they're about development in quotation marks too. Yeah, nobody's going to put a picture of like policymakers sitting around the table, right? And say, oh, disaster and making. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess this is why we're trying to shift somewhat the framing of disaster to uh, about disaster risk to think about risk creation and how how does this keep perpetuating? How do we keep increasing risk in society um, when we're all of our rhetoric is about reducing risk and reducing vulnerability, but yet we see risk is still growing. That's right. And we still, whilst we're talking about reducing vulnerability, we're still talking about disasters as natural. I think in academic literature, we actually do talk about vulnerability a lot. And we do talk about social construct of disasters a lot. But nevertheless, many of the academics still call disasters natural. And this is what our paper is about. So why are we as academics do it? And what are the reasons for calling disasters natural? This is something that we want to unpack today. Yeah, definitely. And it's something that not everybody agrees with. And... Um, we might look at some cases of where scholars disagree with this, and uh -huh. it is a bit of a contentious subject. Maybe one of the first things we should do is talk about the context in which we found that this expression, natural disaster, is used in academic literature. So we wrote that piece for Open Democracy in 2017, uh, just explaining, you know, in general terms, why disaster is not natural. And we've talked about this before already on the podcast. And so then I, I think, I don't know, Jason, I guess we must have been chatting, you know, about how the phrase is used in academic papers, because I remember must have been last summer, right? When we said, oh, let's just put it in Google Scholar and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And so we put the phrase natural disasters in Google Scholar and then in Science Direct. And we had sort of six digit number results coming, you know, at us. And yes. we realized that actually, if we want to look at every single paper that ever used natural disaster, that'll probably kill us. And many of those were um, not really going to be appropriate for what we wanted to unpack or explain, right? Yeah, totally. And so we decided to, you know, really define the scope of what it is we want to look at. 
And so as Jason said already, one of the things we uh, decided upon is that we will only look at the papers that that use the phrase natural disasters in the context of vulnerability. So the papers that actually show that vulnerability is uh, socially constructed and therefore disaster is socially constructed, but nevertheless use the term. So, you know, they kind of contradict themselves. Um, and then we've also decided that actually, because disaster studies are quite multidisciplinary, it will be really difficult to cover all the journals that talk about disasters in any shape or form. So we focused on six uh, most prominent journals that are really, really well known in the field, starting from 1976, because we used the Keefe paper um, as kind of our starting point, really, you know, um, artificial boundary. So we ended up with almost 600 papers and we wanted to start the dialogue or to continue the dialogue, um, highlighting that the problem still exists. And we found that there were some really stark differences between the ways that disaster studies scholars use this expression, natural disaster. Some are so critical um, of its usage and others are blasé about using it, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And the, one of the categories which I can, it's not that I can agree with it, but I can sort of see the um, logic behind is when academics use um, the, you know, the, the word natural to differentiate between a disaster that is of natural origin or, you know, as they claim of natural trigger and the human induced hazard. So for instance, you know, natural disaster would be a disaster that is caused by a flood, right? Or by an earthquake, whereas technological disaster would be a um, nuclear meltdown or uh, building collapse. So some academics feel that if they don't put that dif differentiation in wording, then we would just all get horribly confused about what kind of disaster we talk. I think that's probably a common retort when we when we talk about you know the problems with using this expression is mm -hmm. that people just won't understand the the difference between an you know an event that's triggered by a, a natural phenomena rather than by humans. And I think it's sort of a an argument that misses the point. Um, but it is something that we hear quite consistently, right? Yeah. The next thing that we found, and this was something that was um, expected, but we maybe didn't expect the dominance of this way of using the expression, was that almost all authors were using the expression as a buzzword and to leverage popularity to uh, often this this meant citing authors that use the expression in the in this way or have popularized this expression. And so you had an author that maybe was talking about disasters quite critically and framing it as a social construct and talking about the, the importance of understanding root causes. But then they might cite another author that used the expression natural disaster with that critique and um, so it got it made its way into their paper and I think that was something we saw quite commonly um, we saw a lot of the usage of natural disaster alongside social vulnerability and this kind of sets up a, a weird contradiction um, and a strange mixture of language how do you go from this to policy influence 
or to public education. You know, you're mo- you're moving from these scientific papers that use problematic language. You know, you're trying to translate from these scientific manuscripts out into other areas of society, and you don't you you don't lose that language. You know that that's the kind of language that translates exactly into the public discourse, and that's what's really problematic about this. It makes it more problematic that some of the very prominent scholars continue to use the language and actually fight for the for using the language. I'm I'm pretty sure many of you have seen the blog published by um, David Alexander, Professor David Alexander, just a couple of months ago. Um, you know, it, I mean, it's not secret that David uh, does use the phrase natural disasters and he's, I think he's quite pro um, natural disasters concept, not in that disasters are natural, but in that the phrase is just a convenience term. So in his blog, he's saying, my viewpoint on this is that natural disasters was only ever used as a convenience term intended to distinguish phenomena with a trigger in the natural environment from those with a technological origin. A more up-to-date rationale might state that there is nothing more natural than human propensity to cause disasters. And then there is quite a fine image with a t-shirt um, that says, says, save the natural disasters. As I guess, uh, <laughs> as I guess the response to the t-shirts that um, no natural disasters campaign yeah. has just released. And, you know, I, I can, I can see where he's coming from. Yes. Okay. It is a convenient term. Okay. We have used it for hundreds of years, but should convenience prevail? Isn't it our job as academics to challenge convenience because it's inaccurate? Yeah. I think that's a, a big question. And maybe David needs to come on disasters to construct it to discuss this. I, I'd love to have him. I, because I'm really curious. It becomes a, a problem, not only in the academic discourse when we end up with these strange contradictions and we end up spending our time trying to trying to somehow bring together different concepts and um, pieces of research that don't align because of problematic uh, translation issues, you know? But I think that the bigger issue is when we bring it to other stakeholders and other forums and we proceed based on some sort of understanding of disasters as a natural phenomena or something that we can't do anything about. And I think that's where I I really think that that argument of, of it's okay because it's a convenience term falls down. When you actually get into the public discourse and you look at how people, how it changes people's behavior and their maybe the way that they vote and the, the policies that they support, depending on whether they see disasters as something that's just inevitable because of nature or whether they see disasters as something that is designed into society by the powerful. Yeah. But, we, you know, we need to admit that there are actually quite a lot of literature out there that critiques 
the paper. We're not the first, the first people who, no. who have done this. Um, and Jason already talked about, um, Phil O'Keefe and the colleagues who, who wrote the, you know, the seminal paper. But also there is, even now, there is a lot of critique, a lot of critique, which mm. is great to see. And people raise really valid points. I guess Terry Cannon is probably one of the most prolific writers who really critiques the misnomer. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, if you're interested, check out the reference list, um, in the paper. For sure. And I think that it's hopefully going to just increase this, um, proportion of papers that are critical. We right. found, we found that it was 13 of the papers that we analyzed out of nearly 600. So by far it was the smallest amount of papers out of the sample that critiqued the expression. Um, interestingly, the majority of those papers actually appeared in the International Journal of Disaster Risk Science. As you can see in our in our paper, we we look at the the how these different approaches to the expression appear in the different journals. And it was also actually interesting to see how the number of papers increased or decreased depending on the editor. Mm. So you can see that some of the editors are really trying to tackle the issue and sort of get rid of uh, the natural disaster misnomer, like disaster prevention and management, for instance, with um, JC. Yeah, you know, we, we could also do an analysis in the last five years, and I wonder what that would look like. So it happened that my office is located in the water and engineering development center. So mm. these are the people who are doing wash work and only because of that. And because I've been to a few conferences that they've organized just as a kind of helper organizer rather than as a presenter, I've actually met Chambers who was the person who introduced the whole idea of kind of vulnerability and capacity assessment. Mm. And it's fascinating that we now almost rediscovering what he has been talking about in the 80s. Well, that's a big problem with these academic silos. And we see this all the time. You know, you have a, a discipline that's been operating in a silo and they think they've discovered something really new. And yeah. they're just really repeating what others have found before in a different silo. <laughs> Well, yeah, precisely. And I just wonder um, how many, you know, how, how much we don't know of what it is that already exists. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess reading is the only way to, to engage with this, but it's just so difficult, right? I wish we had some kind of database, which um, among all the academics where, you know, if I want to know all about vulnerability in all the subject areas, I just put the word vulnerability and this amazing database just comes at me like a Wikipedia of kind of academic mm. pontification. So that's what I want really in my life. <laughs> a Wikipedia of academic pontification. Yeah, there you go. There, there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> but we need to talk about current politics as well, don't we? And that sort of that is quite prominent in the way people are discussing governance and natural, in quotation mark, disasters. What do you think, Jason? I still feel even with, within disaster studies, there is a real reluctance to set our research in the context of current politics and you know, especially the last 30 years of neoliberalism, you know, the world has shifted and society has shifted differently in different places. But generally, our um, globalized system is neoliberal, right? And I think that within certain disciplines, 
there's a lot of work that has been done to move their academic thought to a place that's very critical of the system, you know, the, the neoliberal economic social and political status quo. And within disaster studies more generally, there's so much work that's being um, done, which is great that that either intentionally um, omits a political dimension or mm. is just naive, that doesn't really ever... Um, consider that it might be important to have a political dimension to the work. And I think this is um, really a, a weakness moving forward that we need to address. And like we talked about at the start of this episode, I think there's a lot of people that are just afraid of going there in their work because of the ramifications. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we've discussed it in one of the episodes um, a few weeks ago when Emmanuel and Giuseppe were with us. Um, you know, we discussed the status quo and how we're going to disrupt it. But I wonder whether some of this, you know, fear is actually not fear per se, but it's just the way we are trained, you know, as academics, and that we just take everything um, out of the context almost, you know, and put it in academic sterile environment and then unpack mm. it. And then repack it in the way that we need it to be presented and never put it back in the context from where it came from. Yeah, I agree. And I think that some of the criticism that is leveled at academics is that we are just kind of divorced from reality and we're in our ivory tower pontificating, like you said. <laughs> and so there's, there's just a disconnect between what we do and what policymakers do and what the public is forced to experience in the society that is shaped by our governance structures. And so part of that is certainly language. You know, if we're using jargon and we're endlessly debating about the right word to use or the right acronym or like the exact meaning of something, um, I can see how the public sort of disengage from that and think that it's totally irrelevant to their everyday life. And I can see how policymakers think that we're navel-gazing um, and <laughs> practitioners think that as well. Um, and so how do we overcome that? You know, we have to be able to meet those sort of accusations because sometimes those accusations are just an excuse to discount what we say and to discount the argument and the challenge. Because if we're, if we're coming up with an argument to challenge the status quo and say that these ways of governing and these ways of legislating and um, forming policy are, are fundamentally oppressing people and they're not looking out for the, the most marginalized in society and they are firmly in favor of perpetuating the status quo and in mm -hmm. fact consolidating power and consolidating wealth for the powerful and for those who can lobby for these kinds of things. So if that is our challenge, I think that the powerful are scared of that challenge. And one of the ways that they can sort of censor us or tell us to be quiet or convince others that we're just not relevant or that what we're saying isn't true is just by saying that we're 
doing something like navel-gazing or pontificating or we're in an ivory tower. We don't understand the real world. I think we need to meet that challenge, don't we? And one of the ways that we can do that is by changing the language that we use and by translating our work, either these styles and this use of jargon um, that is very discipline-specific sometimes mm-hmm. and is quite siloed, is for an academic audience. And so... I think this kind of gets to the foundation of why we're doing things like making a podcast is to challenge some of these criticisms that come against um, just intellectualism or academic work or against science, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And we really, you know, I know that it's difficult for us to communicate clearly and accurately because we we are trained to hide behind words, so to say. But I think we just, as academics, we need to be a little bit more deliberate and a little bit more measured in how we use words mm. and be very consistent as well. And that is very often the problem. So the way we choose words is an excellent starting point for opening up discussion and engaging with policymakers, you know, and inviting them to engage with us. And it's the same with communities and just with anyone or with each other, even, right? I have a difficult question for you, well, for you, Jason, and for you, the audience. Okay. So if we are, you know, to kind of to say, okay, let's not use natural disasters. So, well, you and I, we kind of agree that disasters are enough, but we have seen quite a lot that actually that is not a good enough word. So what should we replace the natural disasters with? I don't really feel inclined to spend time challenging that. It's sort of like... Um, challenging people that have a very fixed mindset can be really counterproductive because you usually just reinforce the mindset um, if people are not open to changing. So where I do think it's useful to challenge this misnomer is, is in disaster studies more broadly, especially in these journals which are influential on the sort of interdisciplinary science of disasters. Because I think we're, we're seeing in the literature so much contradiction when we really unpack it. And I think people are really confused. And, you know, the, the people who are dealing with the human aspect of disasters, the way that society constructs risk, those are the people that are being consulted to, um, to come up to talk to the public, to kind of translate their science into the public discourse. And so I think that's where I feel led to target um, any anything that I can do in terms of shifting the way that people communicate um, rather than the whatever we found, you know, 500,000 usages of natural disaster in literature. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is pretty irrelevant to um, where we can make any difference. I agree. I think as long as we emphasize and as long as people understand that there is a difference between hazard and a disaster, I think it would immediately become obvious that actually disaster is a process of maldevelopment. Yeah. And, and so if we're clear about it, we will be able to take the kind of the leading role uh, 
in a public discourse about why disaster is not natural. And, you know, as you said, it hopefully would have some kind of impact. And like you were saying, it's really important to highlight the difference between a hazard and disaster, and they're not synonymous. And I think that's a really good starting point to talk about this with people. And for me, I don't really think that coming up with a new um, term is going to be useful. I would say that using disaster in a in an academic setting where we're talking about vulnerability is the be- is the best approach to use disaster by itself. And at the same time, that's not really enough. You need to explain how we are framing disaster. I'm, and you can do that in two or three lines. It's not that difficult to do. You don't need to spend the whole paper trying to explain that disasters have social and political yeah. and economic root causes. You know, you can say that pretty quickly and you can frame your paper really quickly without getting yourself into this difficult area where you're overlooking the social dimension and the political dimension. Yeah, well, but listeners, tell us what you think, whether, you know, we should stick to the phrase natural disasters or whether we should change and create a new phrase or whether saying disasters is enough. Mm. I mean, there's so much to unpack and I think we could talk about this for like hours and hours, but you're used to our 30 minutes episode. So I guess we better wrap up. So how do we, how do we get people to change? It's not something that's just one dimensional, like convincing academics to not use a certain expression in their next paper is by itself not going to make a huge difference to society Mm. but i think the big difference is when it's a coordinated effort where you know where there's pressure being put on organizations and institutions like the no natural disasters campaign um, at the same time as a a lively debate in academic circles yeah um which is not trying to promote censorship but it's trying to get people to work together for the betterment of society to say like is there a problem with some of the stuff that we say and you know you and i are um the first to admit that we say some problematic things sometimes or we've written things in the past so um i think i think scholars that are really interested in social change through their work are um, obliged to be self-critical and it's really important i think it's a really healthy thing if we can discuss this without judgment and encourage people to be open about what they might have done in the past and how they're thinking about it now and i think the the public appreciate that too when we're open about our process Absolutely. And I think that's part of the beauty of being an academic. You know, you, you kind of, you grow and develop mm. and your thinking process develops. For sure. So don't forget to check out the whole paper. It's available online or it should be by the time this episode airs. We'll put it on the show notes. It's in the International Journal of Disaster Risk Science, which is open source and available online. And just to remind you, we will be with you again next week on Monday. Disasters Deconstructed is available wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter. Tweet us at DisastersDecon. 
Thanks so much for listening today. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. I'm Jason Von Medi. And I'm Ksenia Chmutina. See you next time. Bye.